0: Heavenly Father, we praise your name. We praise you in your sanctuary. And we praise you, Father, in the mighty expanse of the heavens that you created for yourself, that you would be praised. We praise you, Father, for your mighty deeds, for those things you do in our life every day, and for the ways you show yourself to us in your mighty ways. We praise you, Father, according to your greatness in excellence. Your perfect nature, Father, the glory that is yours alone. We praise you, Father, for the fact that you have brought it to us in a way that we can understand it in a limited sense through the through the presence of your Son on earth and the Spirit in our hearts. We come to know a little of your greatness, and we thank you, Father, for that. And we praise you here this morning, Father, with trumpets and with guitar and with our voices. Father, we praise you because you are deserving of that praise. And everything that has breath, Father, is to praise your name. And now, Father, we praise you through the study of your precious word. We praise you for the works that it represents and teaches. We praise you, Father, for the power that you displayed in preserving it and bringing it to us. And we praise you, Father, for the wisdom and truth that it holds for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Genesis 30. This is the story, as you know, of Jacob and Jacob's family. A story of human weakness set upon one another. It's ugly in a sense. It's all on display for us here in the text. And yet as we study him and his family, what we're also studying is God's grace and his grace and his mercy abound in the story of Jacob and his family. Because Jacob is a man of weakness. Jacob has a lot of faults, a lot of poor qualities, and his weaknesses propagate into the family, his wives first and then later into his children. Because he's stubbornly continuing to seek after things that God himself has not prepared for him. Or at the very least, he's seeking at times for things that God may have for him, but he's going about it the wrong way. And in the course of all of that weakness, he's going to bring consequences upon himself. That's one of the basic rules of our relationship with God is that he loves us too much not to discipline us. And those consequences fall not only on him, but also on his family. He's a man who does not foresee those consequences. He doesn't really look past the moment and understand the consequences of his actions, especially in the way they're going to impact his family. He's blind to that. For example, his choice to marry two women instantly produced an unhealthy situation in his family. Two women who are now insanely jealous of one another over their desire for Jacob's love. And as Jacob goes about doing what he does, he pours fuel on this fire by showing favoritism to Rachel and all but dismissing Leah after he obtains Rachel. And as sisters, Rachel and Leah, can you imagine the kind of intense desperation that follows as each tries not only to win over their husband, but to do so now at the expense of the other? It's been said that jealousy is bred in doubts. And when those doubts change into certainties, then the passion turns into absolute madness. Well, clearly Leah has doubts about Jacob's affection for her and the doubts are justified. Those doubts become confirmed. And when the confirmation comes, then we see the madness to follow. And so she seeks to find some way to gain an upper hand in this marriage vis-a-vis her sister who has Jacob's love and As we saw last week, God begins to honor the unloved Leah, giving her four sons before ever doing anything to open the womb of Rachel. But yet Jacob continues to ignore Leah, even though she's doing what every good woman should do in that day, in that culture, provide her husband with sons, the ultimate of her purpose in marriage as they saw it, and yet it appears to be nothing to Jacob. Now, ironically, Leah lacked Jacob's love But she could give Jacob children while Rachel had Jacob's love. But the one thing she wanted to do and couldn't was to give him children. It's just an interesting dynamic God has created. It would appear that God is emphasizing in this relationship that Jacob's unfair treatment of his wife Leah is not in keeping with God's intentions for bringing forth the tribes of Israel. And he's trying to show that to Jacob by how he's dealing with these women. And then meanwhile... Rachel, watching all of this happen, her jealousy just grows out of control. And her frustration at not being able to have children is growing with it. It's also been said that jealousy is the art of injuring oneself more than another. And that is certainly going to be true for Rachel as she proves by her actions. Now, as we begin this chapter, I want to set up your expectations for what we're doing in the chapter. Because in many respects, this chapter is almost like a genealogy chapter. By that I mean that at first glance it can seem to be absent any meaningful application for us. It, it appears to be setting up future issues, and in fact that's a large part of why it exists in the record of Scripture. It's helping set up more of what will come in the story of Jacob and his family. We'll be able to trace back to this chapter in numerous times as we go forward into the book. But that doesn't mean there aren't things here that God can show us concerning our own family life or our own behaviors and actions. So. We're going to look at that as well. But the primary focus today is on the actions and the consequences for each of the actors in the story. Let's start in chapter 30, verse 1. We'll read the first eight verses. Now, when Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she became jealous of her sister. And she said to Jacob, give me children or else I die. Then Jacob's anger burned against Rachel. And he said, am I in the place of God? who is withheld from you, the fruit of the womb. She said, here's my maid, Bilhah. Go into her that she may bear on my knees, that through her I too may have children. So she gave him her maid, Bilhah, as a wife, and Jacob went into her. Bilhah conceived and bore Jacob a son. Then Rachel said, God has vindicated me and has indeed heard my voice and has given me a son. And therefore, she named him Dan. Rachel's maid Bilhah conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. So Rachel said, with mighty wrestlings, I have wrestled with my sister and I have indeed prevailed. And she named him Naphtali. Well, presumably, and there is some things we have to assume here. Presumably, Jacob has been showing his affection to Rachel at least as much as he had been with Leah. And given the difference in the way he perceived the two women, we have to probably assume he's been giving even more of his affection to Rachel than he did to Leah. And yet, in all of this time, it's been only Leah to produce children and not Rachel. So she has obviously been building up frustration about this. She watches her sister Leah bear son after son after son. And herself, having no pregnancy, she just gets insanely jealous. And you have to assume Leah has been having roughly one son every year in the way that this story plays out. And you'll see by the time we end this chapter that they have all of the sons that Jacob leaves Haran with in the span of roughly seven years. Thinking now from Rachel's point of view, it's been at least four years of this marriage and no children, nothing. It would be bad enough for a woman to have failed to have children in this day and age, but... Now that she's in a competition with her sister, it's even worse that she's not having children. And now she views this competition as even more important to her than merely having children for her husband. Once more, folks, you can see just in passing here the sin of multiple wives and how it clearly now is evident in the family. The consequences of that sin now is coming to the foreground in this story. There is nothing good. There is nothing natural about this family situation. In the way that it's playing out. And this this discord that's been created by having these two sisters married to the same man is spilling over now into other aspects of the relationship of the family. It's going to spill over now into the relationship that Rachel has with her husband, with Jacob. Because she turns to him after four years of frustration and she demands, give me a child or I will die. Now that statement is notable for at least two reasons. First, it's of great disrespect that she would say something like this. To her husband. And that's especially true given the culture of the day, because she cannot accuse him of being the one responsible for her not having children. He's got Leah here having babies left and right. Clearly he's capable of having children. So she accuses him nonetheless of being the one withholding children from her. She's putting the blame at him for something that clearly is not his fault, given the fact that he can have children with Leah. So the first thing we note here is that her statement is dishonest, disrespectful and accusatory in a way that can't be true. It can't be. We have to read it as a statement rooted in frustration. The way a kid will lash out at a parent or a spouse to a spouse here. It's really hatred. It's hatred for her sister directed to her husband or at the very least hatred for her situation directed at her husband. Now, the second notable thing about this statement is its irony. It's a tremendously ironic statement. If you know the story of Rachel, we haven't seen this yet in the text, but most of you probably have heard or read the story of Rachel before. You know how her life ends, right? In childbirth, she dies giving birth to the 12th son of Jacob. And yet here she is saying, if I don't have children, I will die. We'll consider the implication of that irony a little later. Meanwhile, Jacob now, with his accusation at his feet, he responds to Rachel. He does it here, it says, in anger. The text in Hebrew actually is an intense form of anger. Anger burning is the way we have it in English, but it means just an intense anger. This is a a wedge that jealousy is driving into the relationship between Rachel and her husband. Here again, proof that the multiple marriages that he has embarked on is not a good thing for him and for his family. And now her jealousy over another wife has become that wedge to push her and her husband apart. Jacob responds by correcting her. First, on the facts. He reminds her that, am I in control of your womb? No, I'm not. God is. And self-evidently, he has prevented you from having children. So your beef is not with me. It's with God. Now we know from the text of Genesis that he is actually literally correct. We've read already that God has left her barren. And so... The fault, if you want to call it a fault, does land with God because it is him that's holding her womb back. And it's clear to Jacob that must be the answer. Now, God has a reason for doing this because here's Jacob recognizing God at work. And that work is to prevent Rachel from having children. He sees that. But here's the irony. He doesn't understand what it means. He never even seems to stop and ask the question. He never stops to consider why. Has God prevented one wife from having children while clearly blessing the other one so fruitfully? He doesn't stop to ask himself, is there some message in this for me? Is it perhaps that God has favored one wife over the other? Could it mean something about which of these women was my intended wife in the first place? We'll come back to that. So now we see Jacob's sin here, his sin of multiple wives. Beginning to propagate into his family, Jacob rejected the wife God gave him, Leah, and in place picked a different woman, Rachel. And as a result of that sin, he has produced jealousy in his family. That jealousy has now shown itself in competition for children who can bear children. And because God has favored the one over the other, that is now led for Rachel to be desperate and ultimately to seek a bad solution to make her own way. Have we seen this before? A woman who has been withheld from having children rather than wait on the Lord chooses another solution, one that ultimately brings negative consequences for her. Well, like Sarah before her, she's doing exactly what happened in the case of Abraham and Sarah. She results here to a cultural practice, one that was legal in the culture, but is not in keeping with God's desires. She says, you can have my maid, Bilha as a wife. That's where we get the word concubine from. It means a slave woman who is made a wife of the slave owner. So she is, in fact, a wife. She has the same role and privileges in the family that any other wife would have, except that she is a slave of an existing wife of Rachel in this case, which means she takes a lower station in the family. And it comes out most clearly in the inheritance. A concubine has no inheritance from the man that she's married to versus a true wife, a free wife. But Rachel has said to Jacob, you can have a third wife And the child from that concubine would legally be considered the child of the owner of Rachel. That's the meaning of the term, I will bear on my knees. What she's saying is, I will act, Rachel will act as the midwife on her knees in front of the woman giving birth, take the baby as it's born, and both symbolically and literally claim it as hers. And so she's saying to Jacob, I can't have kids. But if you marry my maid and make her your wife, you can make up for this deficit. This idea traces back to her earlier statement that it's his fault. She said, it's your fault I can't have kids. The least you can do to honor me is marry my maid so that when she bears, I will receive that child on my knees as my own. And then you'll at least have made up for the fact that you can't give me children. Now, where's Jacob in all this? Giving the maid as a wife is a sin. It was a sin for Sarah to do it. It's a sin now for Rachel to do it. Jacob's right response would have been, I'm not going to sin because you're not having children. Remember, he's already had four by his other wife. It's not as though this is the only way he'll have children. Instead, he entertains the request and he goes along with it, just as Abraham did. It was sin for Abraham to do it then. It's sin for Jacob to do it now. Isaac and Rebekah, you remember, they never resorted to this. They had exactly the same circumstances, but they're set apart in Scripture as the example of those who would wait on the Lord. And if you remember, what did they do with that time that they had in waiting? They prayed. They asked God to solve the problem. And when the time was right, he did. But here's Jacob, a man who always gets what he wants the fast and easy way. That's really a way to sum him up in your mind. If there's a shortcut, he takes it. If there's a way that he can scheme, he'll use it. And here's a man who's already married twice. What's a third wife when you already have two? Where's the harm? Well, of course, the harm is the multiplication of jealousy, the multiplication of sin in the family, the multiplication of the consequences. So with Bilha, we're now told Jacob is able to produce two more sons, Dan and Nephilim. The name Dan means judge because Rachel said God has vindicated me or the word judge there refers to God having declared or judged her to be innocent. But it carries an implication. The implication is she's saying to her sister through this name, God judged our situation and sitting on high, he looked at me and he looked at you and he decided I was the one who was right. And he favored me over you. She's named the son as a mockery of the other wife, Dan, judge. And then the second child comes along, Naphtali. Naphtali means I have wrestled. And here again, this is a dig, an insult against Leah, because she's saying, I have wrestled. I have fought with my sister and I came out on top. I'm bearing sons now. Legally, they're her sons, even though they're coming through the other wife. But she's saying they're mine because that's how the law reflected it. So what's truly going on here in this family? We know the Lord is allowing these children. There's never any doubt about that. These children are coming because the Lord has opened Bilhah's womb and allowed these things to happen, of course. And he has good reason for doing it. But his purpose in doing it is not the one Rachel has assumed it to be. Rachel's attitude here is very typical of what we will always see among those who know the Lord but are living far from him, that are outside his will. And the attitude is this. We presume to tell others what God is doing in our life and why, but we have the answers completely wrong. We'll always, and typically the heart of it is, to find a way to justify their circumstances in some respect so as to imply God's approval over those circumstances. So when good things are happening to us, though we're sinning, we justify the sin by the consequences or the outcome, the short-term outcome, by pointing them and saying, well, if God wasn't happy with what I'm doing, you wouldn't let this good thing come from it, so clearly I must be okay with God. We assume that the mere fact that we're getting something we want is proof that God also wants it. But that makes no sense on its face, right? Because we often get the thing we want when it isn't what God wants. We have a word for that. Sin. Every time we sin... We're doing something we want that he doesn't want. And the fact that we can accomplish something in the course of that is not proof of anything, except that God will often forego judgment and will occasionally forego discipline. But that's hardly license for us to keep doing it, isn't it? It's fooling ourselves. Every day, billions of people do exactly what they want and get what they intend to get And that has nothing to say about what God's view of it is, except perhaps that it tells us God is capable of using sin to accomplish good purposes in the end. But that does not equate to God's approval of our sin. Think about how God used Satan in leading Judas to betray the Lord. The fact that God worked the plan in that way does not mean God approved of Satan, does It just means he knows how to turn all things to good in his wisdom. So clearly, Rachel is engaged in a sinful hatred of her sister, a war with her sister, in spite against her sister. Leah, you could argue, is a victim in this case, but that victimhood doesn't last very long. Let me tell you, she joins the fight here pretty soon. So it's not going to be a one-sided fight. As Rachel does all this, what is she assuming? Well, she's presuming, and we know this by the names that she's giving these boys... She's presuming that the Lord's on her side. The Lord wants her to win this fight. The Lord's in her corner saying, go get him. hit him harder, harder, harder. Somewhere in the back of our mind, that logic starts to make sense to us. When we're doing things like this is simply evidence that we want to justify our sin, not a proof of who God is. We don't have to look at circumstance in that way to know what God really thinks about our lives, do we? We just turn to this. We have everything we need right here to tell us how he views these behaviors, how he views these attitudes. we don't have to guess, and when what we're doing doesn't line up with what we know God's word says, we have our answer. We've got to be careful in assuming that God always sees things the way we do, because in my experience, it's almost always the opposite. God states in His word what he desires. those desires don't bend to any man's will and. When our will is outside his will, he may choose to visit those consequences on our head, or he may be kind and merciful and withhold those consequences, at least for a time, if not forever. But none of that has anything to say about whether what we're doing is right or wrong, or whether he's pleased or not. There's a corollary here. The corollary is when things are going badly in our life, badly by our standards, that itself says nothing about God's pleasure or lack thereof, with us. Many godly men and women suffer greatly in this life because it's for their benefit spiritually and for God's glory ultimately. Those aren't measures of God's pleasure with them. The measure of his pleasure will be their willingness to obey him despite their circumstances. That's the measure, not the nature of their circumstances. Now, in this case, God is speaking clearly to these two women and to their husband about his wishes, He's blessing Jacob with boys, primarily through the woman he gave him, that is Leah. And God brought from her ultimately tribes like Levi to become priests or the tribe of Judah to become kings to demonstrate to Jacob, this is the woman I selected for you. Now, Jacob has ignored that. He's chosen two more women on top of the one God gave him. And of those two women, one has been kept barren to make a point to Jacob. And that only prompted him to sin additionally in an attempt to get around that barrier. And now he's had a maid that's born only two children so far. In fact, she will bear only two sons. Now, the number two in Scripture, when it appears in Scripture, it has meaning. All numbers do. And the number two has the meaning of division in Scripture. Division. Just as the two boys of Abraham, Ishmael and Isaac, divided. And the two sons of Isaac Esau and Jacob were divided. Likewise, here, God is highlighting by having only two children come from this woman, Bilhah, that there is a division in the family of Jacob. The women are divided. Jacob's attention is divided. And eventually the sons that are going to come from these women are going to be divided one against another in the family. Down the way of of Israel's history, even the nation itself is one day divided and the names of the tribes that head the two divisions are names that come from Leah and Rachel. The division is just starting, but it goes for quite a while and has a lot of consequences and it runs deep. And the jealousy doesn't end here, that's for sure. There's more of that. Look at verse 9. When Leah saw... That she had stopped bearing. She took her maid, Zilpah, and gave her to Jacob as a wife. Leah's maid, Zilpah, bore Jacob a son. And then Leah said, how fortunate. So she named him Gad. Leah's maid, Zilpah, bore Jacob a second son. Then Leah said, happy am I, for women will call me happy. So she named him Asher. Start with the first verse in that passage and notice The scripture says she had stopped bearing, but there's no indication in there that God stopped her. And what I mean by that is in the way Moses explains the outcome, he doesn't say God made her barren, whereas he has talked that way about Rachel. I think the cause is different in this case, and I think it goes back to the issue of Jacob's diverted attention. We know he prefers Rachel. That's clear enough. It's also the case we're going to learn later in the text that his normal nightly place to lay his head is in Rachel's tent. Jacob has had four sons with Leah, and once Bilhah, Rachel's maid, once she started bearing, there was little reason for him to spend any more time with Leah. The only reason he's had any reason to go into Leah's tent so far has been basically because he wants children, and she's the one producing them. So he goes back to her regularly, maybe only once a year. Meanwhile, his affection is with Rachel, and he spends his time in Rachel's tent. And now that Rachel has a way to provide children through Bilhah, that's even more incentive for him to simply stay in Rachel's tent, maybe never to see Leah again in an intimate way. And so Leah notices, I'm not bearing anymore. Really, the text could say potentially that Jacob was not giving her the opportunity to bear anymore. So she hatches a plan, one that will compete with Rachel. Leah offers Jacob her maid. Zilpah. And the attraction for Jacob, how do you explain that at this point? The guy already has six sons, which is plenty in that day and age by the standards of the day. He has a good growing family. What's his incentive to add a fourth wife to the stable, so to speak? There's only one answer that comes to my mind, and that's lust. The pure, exciting value of a new woman in his life, which is sin. And it's not something God would endorse in any case. So he agrees to take the maid based on his flesh. More importantly, Jacob is clearly advocating any leadership in his family. There's no pushback. There's no discussion. These wives of his can just throw extra women at him and he just takes them like they're another candy in the, in the candy store. There's absolutely no consequential thought from him about what is the limit for this family for me? What is God's will for me in this? We'll see that weakness time and time again in his life and in his family. It won't end with his wives. In coming chapters, we're going to watch him as he deals with his grown sons, as a man who gives little regard for God's direction in his life, at least at times, and allows his sons to rule the family in a very unfortunate way, in a very negative way. Going back to Leah and Zilpah for a moment, we hear Zilpah now giving children to Jacob, two sons, Gad and Asher. Gad comes from the Hebrew word for fortunate, that's why she names him that, and Asher literally means happy, so she names him Asher. But like Rachel, these names are directed at her sister. Remember how she named the fourth son of the first four, Judah? It means praise, as in praise the Lord. There was a point in Leah's early life, as they were having the four babies, that she came around to understand, this is God at work, and my husband doesn't care for me, but I'm going to cast those concerns on God and praise him nonetheless for the way he's blessing me with these children. Then Rachel got into the game, started tossing grenades over the fence with these names like Dan and so on. And now that new children are coming through Zilpah, Leah decides it's her turn. And so she says, I'm the one who's happy. I'm the one who has fortune that God is shining his face upon me now. The tables have turned in my direction. At this point, I, I have to literally imagine if this didn't stop, if they didn't stop having babies, we'd get down to the point where the names were like, Nan, an, 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 and whatever else they could come up with, because they're getting to that point of silliness. Now, once again, God delivers new children, but how many does he deliver? Only two to this woman. Another coded message of division. But the story of the children is not over even yet. Look at verse 14. Now, in the days of the wheat harvest... Reuben went and found mandrakes in the field and brought them to his mother, Leah. Then Rachel said to Leah, please give me some of your son's mandrakes. But she said to her, is it a small matter for you to take my husband? And would you take my son's mandrakes also? So Rachel said, therefore, he he may lie with you tonight in return for your son's mandrakes. When Jacob came in from the field in the evening, then Leah went out to meet him and said, you must come in to me. For I have surely hired you with my son's mandrakes. So he lay with her that night. God gave heed to Leah. to Leah, And she conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. Then Leah said, God has given me my wages because I gave my maid to my husband. So she named him Issachar. Leah conceived again and bore a sixth son to Jacob. Then Leah said, God has endowed me with a good gift. Now my husband will dwell with me because I have borne him six sons. So she named him Zebulun. Afterward, she bore a daughter and named her Dinah. Well, Jacob's oldest son, Reuben, becomes a focus for a moment. He's about five or six at this point, And we're guessing that based on the fact that these children all come within seven years. And he's the oldest. He goes out into the field during the harvest, playing around as the men probably work the field. And he finds a flower called a mandrake. Now, a mandrake is a rare flower. You wouldn't find it very easily or very often. It's a wild plant. It has bluish flowers, and they produce a very yellowish, plum-like fruit in the summertime. It's prized, and still even today in the Middle East, it's prized as an aphrodisiac, as an inducer of fertility. That's the myth behind it. It has a name called a duday today, and it means beloved. In English, it's sometimes called the love apple. Well, it's obvious then why both women are desiring it under the circumstances. Reuben, just doing what little boys do, thought it was a pretty flower and brought it home to his mom. It's a simple little gift. But when Rachel sees it, she immediately recognizes it for what it is. She also sees it as something that could solve her infertility problem. Because remember, Rachel is the only woman of the four to this point who's not had any children of her own. And though she's had the legal children of Bilhah, it's still eating at her that she can't have any children of her own. So she asks Leah for some of the mandrakes. Now, Leah, for her part, is bitter, as we know. She's jealous, of course. She's been that way since the start of the marriage. And so she turns to Rachel, and I can almost see it in her eyes, this kind of, I can't believe you would even think to ask me this. What she says is, you want the mandrake but you already have my husband. So it's not enough for you to take my husband. You also want to take the only means I might have to try to get some of his attention. Now we can gather that's why Leah hasn't had a chance to get more sons to this point. If Rachel has had Jacob's attention exclusively, the only conclusion we can draw is Rachel is holding Jacob back not allowing him to spend any time with Leah any longer, trying to deny Leah from any opportunity to have more children or to have her husband's affection. And this accusation, I think, reflects that. It's not enough that you took my husband from me. Now you want to take this too? So Leah decides to negotiate. She knows Rachel wants children. Leah wants Jacob's affection. So she says, I will give you or I'll sell you these mandrakes, but I want my own husband back for a night. So then they make the arrangement. Now then Leah goes out to the field. She catches Jacob on the way in. She says, guess what? I bought you tonight. You have to come to my tent. Was Jacob obligated to do this? In other words, did this little affair between the two women obligate Jacob to actually go to the tent? Did he have no choice in the matter, I guess is my real question. No, <laughs> of course he had choice. This isn't like a legally binding thing. He, he's agreeing to go along with this little thing the women have going on He's a party to their arrangement at that point when he agrees. Once again, he's willing to play along because either he wasn't prone to leading within his family or his lust gets the better of him or he's just completely checked out anyway and he's a milk toast kind of husband at this point. He just goes where they tell him to go. Any of those options are wrong. I mean, It doesn't matter which one you pick. He's feeding flames of a dangerous fire. He's encouraging the whole thing. He's reinforcing their behavior by acknowledging this is valid. In describing their time together that night, the scripture says in verse 16 that Jacob lay with Leah. That's really interesting in the Hebrew because the word for lay or lie is a special word in Hebrew. It's only ever used in the context of illicit sexual activity. For example, it was used with Lot and his daughters. Anytime you see illicit sexual activity, it's the word lay or lie in Hebrew. It's a special word. It's also going to be used when Potiphar's wife tries to entice Joseph to lie with her. An adulterous way. So when Moses uses this word to describe the activity of Leah and Jacob, it's an indication that this is not a sanctifying act in the marriage bed. Even though this is husband and wife, they are acting in sin because their behavior is being driven by hearts of sin, by jealousy, by sinful desire to hurt another out of manipulation. There's nothing healthy in this. And the scripture is reflecting that. I think, by implication, Jacob was giving himself freely to Leah at least once a year, but he spent all his quality time with Rachel. After four babies, Rachel says, I'm cutting this woman off. And in jealousy, she starts to prohibit, in one way or another, Jacob from getting into Leah's tent ever. And so Leah goes without children for a while. That prompted the whole maid thing. And now, as a result of this deal... Jacob gets another night with Leah. What happens? Bam, another child. Is that not a sign from God that this is the woman that Jacob is supposed to spend his time with for the sake of producing the children of Israel? She produces a son named Issachar. The name literally means hire, as in I've hired Jacob with the mandrake. And then the second name, the sixth son, Zebulun, after we see Issachar come along, Jacob is reinterested in spending time with Leah because he's made aware again of her ability to produce children so reliably. So now he has incentive to spend more time with Leah. And of course, with that comes yet another son, Zebulun. His name means endowed or dowry because these children, Leah says, are gifts for me. I want you to notice who she starts talking to in the naming of these children. Where before the two that came from the maid were spitefully named against her husband. Look at these two. These now are said to be names in response to the Lord, thanking the Lord, recognizing the Lord at work, that he has decided to join back into this arrangement. At least the last name for sure is directed at the Lord. It would seem that she's lost her appetite of attacking her sister in this process. To end today, I want you to look at the last child that's brought into the story in Genesis 30. God brings grace to Rachel so that she might bear at least this child for Jacob. Verse 22. Then God remembered Rachel and God gave heed to her and opened her womb. So she conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. She named him Joseph, saying, may the Lord give me another son. Obviously, the Lord is now ready for her to have children. It says that God gave heed to her and opened her womb. Giving heed means gave regard for her and now has given her a child In the time when he was ready. He's waited long enough for those two additional sons of Leah to come into being. And then at that point, he gives Rachel a child. God wanted to make sure that when the actual time came for Rachel to have a child, it would not be attributed to the mandrakes. A full two years has gone by, just long enough to make sure. The choice of the name she gives him is interesting and also ironic. She names her son Joseph, which means literally, he shall add. And the reason he's named Joseph is said because she's told the Lord in this moment, I want you to give me another child. (laughs) Thanks for this one, but I want another one. Let's just call this one Joseph to remind you of that. Now, God does eventually give her a second child, but she'll die in the birth of that second child. Let's end by considering God's wisdom here for how he used the sin of these women and the sin of Jacob in bringing it. 11 sons into Jacob's family. First, I'll repeat what we've said before. Jacob was intended for Leah. Leah was intended for Jacob. She has given him six boys in the span of seven years. There is certainly no doubt that if she had been his only wife, six could have become 12 in relatively quick order. There was no need for extra women in order to bring the kind of boys that Jacob was going to eventually arrive at. Second thing we notice is that every other wife of Jacob, other than Leah, has only two sons. Two for each of the maids and two for Rachel. The other wives, therefore, all represent division in the family of Jacob, while Leah has the honor of bearing three times as many sons as any of the other women, three being the number of God. Now, I don't want to make too much of the numbers, but to ignore them altogether would be to miss, I think, the point of what God is saying here. The third thing we notice is, as we know coming in the text later, Rachel will die in giving birth to her second child. I want you to think about that for a minute. A woman who dies in the second of the children she is able to give. Do You see some wisdom in God assigning Jacob to Leah and not to Rachel when his intentions were to bring 12 tribes from whomever would marry Jacob. It appears as though Rachel's not able to live through 12 births. Leah could have a child every year, it would seem. God knew that giving sons to Jacob through Rachel would not be possible, given his intent for Rachel. So he graciously kept Rachel barren as long as he did, giving Jacob even more time with that woman in his life before the second son's arrival and her death through that childbirth. See, from Rachel's point of view, it was God punishing It was her sister winning. From God's point of view, it was grace and mercy to forestall her eventual death from childbirth. You see how our perspectives can't see from God's perspective? We're supposed to trust him. The last thing we note as we finish is all 11 of these sons are born within the seven years that Jacob is now working for Laban to pay for Rachel. The conceptions happened in the order that's described here. But obviously, in order to put 11 births into seven years, many of these pregnancies are concurrent. They're going on at the same time. These women are pregnant at the same time. So that by the time Jacob is ready to leave the land, he will have acquired all but one of his sons, those that God has destined for him. Nevertheless, God used Jacob's sin and he used the jealousy of the women to bring the nation into existence in this rapid way so that the sons would all be of similar age in the family. And that ensured that this family is going to live and grow together, allowing God to direct their lives in unison according to his larger plan. In fact, that final son is born just as Jacob is leaving Haran as they're traveling away, which gives God opportunity later in the life of this family of Israel to raise boys into tribes in a way in which they're all living in virtually the same time of life. But the sin of the family, the sin of the patriarch, the sin of the wives is not done because it's going to fester in the lives of these boys. As we go forward into the end of this chapter and into future chapters, we're going to keep talking about what seeds Jacob sowed in the way he started his family and in the way he allowed this jealousy to play out, comes back to haunt him, haunt his sons, and leads to the most devastating experience in his life a few years from now. Heavenly Father, this story teaches us many things, some of which we won't learn for chapters yet to come, when we see the whole plan, when we see your hand, Father, working across many years. But even in what we do have today, Father, I thank you for the lessons that we take today from the text, the lesson to know that your work, Father, can often be beyond our understanding, that your ways are higher than ours, that our sin, Father, may produce consequences or you may let them pass without consequences. But we can never assume, Father, that you are pleased with our Mistakes that you make light of our sin, but we know by your word that you wish those things would end. So I pray, Father, that we would be reminded in subtle ways, in merciful ways. But I would also pray, Father, that if we are unable to see your mercy and to take your grace, that you would not hesitate, Father, to bring the firmness of your discipline into our lives. If that be necessary, Father, so that we may conform to the image of Christ. For we know that the glory, Father, the eternal reward is far greater than anything we may lose in this life. Thank you, Father, for the example of a man like Jacob, a man, Father, who had weakness, but you used him in a mighty way. Use us, Father, in a mighty way despite our weaknesses. And continue to bring us here that we may support, pray, encourage, and teach one another. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.